Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. It is Monday, April 12th, and I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Pretty well. One year older, none the wiser. Had a nice weekend. Uh, the weather gods seem to have held off just long enough to give me a good Saturday before the rain has come in and not really stopped since. How are you doing? Doing well. And uh, yeah, everyone, send Max your best birthday wishes uh, celebrated on Saturday. Um, another trip around the sun. And <laughs> it's, uh, I guess, your second COVID birthday. So that I don't know if there had been anything new because last year I'm sure there wasn't much to do, but I don't know about this year. We're in the third wave now, so feels similar. Actually, both been celebrated with day drinking and poutine. (laughs) Nice, that's the way to go, right? (laughs) Yeah, man. There was this funny uh, moment Saturday where I was out having Caesars around noon with my dad, and your parents were out in their backyard (laughs) with you on the call, and you started talking about some of this trade deadline stuff. strangest feeling uh you talk about hockey and not being a part of it yeah (laughs) yeah it's you're definitely the person who I talk to most about sports now which I'm thankful for because again if it's not you I'm spewing it to people who don't necessarily care in the rest of my life so (laughs) I'm glad I have this outlet it's very important and you bring up trades you bring up the NHL that is going to be our main focus today we it is currently 8:30 a.m. right now on Monday. We will talk about what has gone down in the NHL so far and then I believe we will try and stitch in our instant reactions to the trade deadline uh right around noon as it's ending uh if anything else big happens there. So we'll do a bit of time traveling on this podcast should be exciting. Uh we'll also have some combat corner. We will put a pretty little bow on the masters and just a couple cool things that happened in baseball this weekend uh and then finish up with some nba and uh, another top shot pack opening i managed to hold off opening up another one of my pre-order packs so we'll be opening that up at the end of the show uh and i missed out on the legendary pack drop that happened today because i had 14 moments in my collection as opposed to 15 uh So if I had opened this pack yesterday, I would have been in line for it. But I do it for the fans, right? Sacrifice is appreciated, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes, sir. All right. Let's talk some hockey, shall we? And fortuitously for us, uh, the most active team at the deadline so far has been is the team that we followed the closest, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, making three trades over the last 72 hours. uh, And we will kick it off. In chronological order, going back to Friday evening when the Toronto Maple Leafs acquire Riley Nash uh, from the Columbus Blue Jackets. And uh, this is a trade where some people scratching their heads about trading for a guy who's currently on long-term injured reserve, LTIR. Uh, But this is a trade that allowed the Leafs to open up some cap space. So they get him, put him on LTIR. It just extends the margin that they can go above the cap at the deadline. <clears throat> at its core, that is like the simplest explanation of LTIR. Otherwise, very difficult to figure out the cap shenanigannery. But essentially just means that they have a little bit more cap space to make more moves at the trade deadline. 
Additionally, with Riley Nash, uh, the Leafs send back a conditional seventh-round pick that becomes a sixth-round pick if he plays 25% of their playoff games. So definitely a possibility you could see him as a third or fourth-line center come playoff time. Uh, he's a big dude. He's not fun to play against. So I think the Leafs getting a guy like that, just the possibility, but more so the trade, the cap space is more important for essentially nothing. Uh, solid pickup, just ways to maneuver yourself. I don't know if you have anything else to say about this one. No, ton. Just replenishing some of that depth we lost to the Canucks and Boyd and VC off waivers. I mean, <clears throat> I kind of did a double take at first because I was thinking depth forwards. Like we already have way too many depth forwards, but looked into the cap stuff and yeah, you never know come injuries down the playoffs. There might be some space for this guy in the bottom six. Certainly nice to have someone with some NHL experience ready to plug that mm -hmm. hole, but on to bigger yeah. and better things from Columbus. Yes. Uh, I guess we'll do Leafs trades first, shall we? Uh, so yesterday, two moves in the span of six hours, I would say. And uh, the last one happening right before I went to sleep, but the Leafs making a big splash and acquiring left winger, Nick Felino and uh, another winger, Stefan Noisen from the San Jose Sharks, but Felino from the Blue Jackets for a first round pick and a fourth round pick to Columbus and a fourth round pick to San Jose, a massive move. Um, San Jose involved in the deal because Columbus retained 50% of Nick's salary and then San Jose retained another 50% of that. So the Leafs are only paying Nick Foligno 25% of his salary. A fourth goes to the Sharks for their troubles because as we'll see from a lot of these moves, cap space is like the most important part of this trade deadline because not a lot of teams have the money to afford their teams. They don't want to make moves where you're paying the full salary of guys um, unless they're really getting something back. And uh, that played a huge factor in this. But uh, we'll talk about what the Leafs get. Nick Foligno and Stefan Nosen, who probably won't crack the lineup, even though he is an NHL caliber player. Just talking about depth forwards, we have plenty. Always nice if a guy gets injured, we have someone we can plug in. But the big piece, Nick Foligno, uh, <laughs> really exciting. Max, I'll let you kick things off on Nick Foligno. Yeah, I mean, this lineup we've seen over the season, Sheldon Keith has been happy to throw into a blender when things aren't going well, when things are going well, really any day that ends in Y and Keith mixing stuff up. So I have no idea where Felino is going to fit in this lineup. You can really see him playing on any line, and he's the kind of guy you can really see excelling on any line, bringing – you can never really have enough, like – grit goal scoring toughness and that's essentially what nick felino brings with veteran leadership and these are the kind of moves you see teams making to try and make that playoff run so we paid a fair amount in a first round pick but this uh, pretty straightforward sink or swim i think if we make it to the second third round it pays off in reducing the value of that pick and a huge step forward for this franchise yeah if anyone is complaining about the price first of all this is the least scouted draft ever in the history of the nhl it feels like uh due to covid and due to half the guys in like the ohl not even playing just just a weird magic beans type year is the word phrase that i've seen going around um it's a late it's going to be a late first round pick and 
if you are concerned about the Leafs giving up draft picks at a time where they have the chance to come out of this division, like the best chance in a really long time to be in the final four of the Stanley Cup playoffs, then you have bigger issues. Because this is like, this is an all-in, let's win now move. And no one will ever care about this pick if the Leafs make it to the third round of the playoffs. Like the Tampa Bay Lightning made way overpaid for Barkley Goudreau and Blake Coleman last year at the deadline. And they won the Stanley Cup and no one cares now, right? It, the price doesn't matter to me. Uh, they're all in. These picks mean nothing. We get tangible guys. We actually don't lose any prospects either, which is huge because these are guys that we have evaluated and we know their uh, potential. So rather keep on to the prospects than picks where you don't know who you could possibly be getting in the draft. Uh, and then and the other thing is, where he slots in the lineup, I think I see him on the second line. I think Galchenyuk played with Matthews and Marner this most recent game because they wanted to see how he fit in on that line, and it was excellent. And so that basically allows them the breathing room to say, okay, we can put Galchenyuk up on the first line, and then essentially now we're looking to put Felino on this second line as that perfect piece who provides that grit and skill besides Tavar- beside Tavares and Nylander because Felino is, you hate to play against this guy. This is a guy that the Leafs have been missing since Kadri, and um, he is a <laughs> MFer that you do not want to go up against. Uh, he's going to deck some guys. He's going to get under your skin. Uh, a guy that just is perfect for playoff hockey. Uh, really excited to have him because he's also that, like, Zach Hyman is – he works hard, but then you sometimes miss the finishing power. Like a lot of his goals are empty netters and perfect setups from Matthews Marners or like rebounds, stuff like that. Nick Foligno is a guy who can score a little bit more on his own, which is what Tavares and Nylander, I think, need a little bit more than Matthews and Marner. I think it's a, just a perfect spot for him. They finally have figured out that left winger because they've had to rotate through Hyman, Simmons, Galchenyuk. So if he can slot in there, that's huge. And then you have Zach Hyman on the third line, which is every team's nightmare. Um, and so, yeah, just I love this move for the potential of him being an absolute pain in the ass to play against. Uh, he's another leader in the locker room. That's going to be like the fourth captain now that the Leafs have added to their like depth with Spezza, Thornton, uh, and I guess Tavares is a former captain. So just a lot of leadership. And then everything that you've heard about this guy, thankfully, you know, is just he's the nicest guy. And people love playing with him. And uh, my girlfriend grew up in Ottawa. His Nick Felino's wife was a school teacher at her school. Everyone loved their family. Uh, I'm sure everyone has kind of a story of how they know the Felinos, but they're excellent and uh, really excited to have them a part of this Leafs run. And hopefully he can have some big moments. And I think he has it in him too, because we just saw last year playing against Columbus in that five game series, hate playing against them, but you love it when he's on, on your team. And so welcome aboard, Nick, really, really exciting stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think you said it all there. I, other than I'm really not certain he'll be a mainstay on that second line at all. I mean, I think Kerfoot and Galchenyuk have been the two most successful players that Keith has slotted alongside Tavares and Nylander. And I kind of see Felino as 
a later stage evolution of those two players, like what they might turn into when they get into his age. So maybe there's something there. But I I can see him dropping down to play with like Engvall, Mikheyev. I can see Keith saying, fuck it, trying him on the first line. I really have no idea where he's going to be. Um, I guess what you're saying about Magic Beans on that draft pick does... I feel like it reduces the value of the early, early picks, like the top five, Mm -hmm. but it almost raises the value of the late picks. Just, I feel like there's a slightly higher chance of getting lucky on those magic beans. So I'm not one, again, you're right. If we go deep, even if Felino doesn't make an impact, I don't really care, but I'm not, I'm a little less certain than you that this is like a guaranteed winner trade I am going to have an eye on what he brings to this team, especially come playoffs. The the regular season, you can wash if he does nothing, but come playoffs. Um, And that's, I guess, there were, I mean, we had questions at all three positions. We were wondering about that top six forward, which Foligno is certainly going to get a chance to fill. We were wondering about that goaltender depth, which has been addressed. So it seems like for now, at least, the defense is the only part that's been left alone as the Leafs have acquired David Riddick from Calgary for a 2022 third round pick. And again, seems like a little bit of an overpay. uh, But at this deadline, it's a big buyer's market. Um, and lots of teams looking to move off guys and lots of teams looking at the same guys. The last thing that the thing that I forgot to mention about Felino is that apparently the other teams in on him were Colorado, Las Vegas, and Washington. And when you have three other really smart teams like that in on a guy, you know, you're probably looking at a pretty decent player. Um, but yeah, the David Riddick trade, uh, a guy who stonewalled the Leafs in the past. Now we're hoping he'll be a stonewall for us. Um, big save, Dave, great depth again, feels a little bit like an overpay, but what I've been reading is that there is potential there that you could possibly resign this guy because if Freddie is gone after this year, then a Campbell Riddick tandem, isn't the worst to kind of fall back on. It's also much lower against your salary cap, which is huge for the Leafs. Uh, so a guy that you bring in again, another guy who all I've heard is incredible things. Everyone loves this guy. Um, and he's fantastic. So just, it also seemed like Kyle Dubas was looking for some character guys to add to the locker room. Uh, everyone loves big save Dave and he comes in, he'll be that third goalie, maybe second. If Freddie, the injury is worse than we predict, which also is a big part of this, uh, but excited just to have more goaltending depth. This is the best goaltending depth the Leafs have had in forever, forever, forever. So yeah, just happy to have another solid guy in the back end yeah it comes around anderson also being added to long-term injured reserve i'm not sure quite the protocol on that like how long he has to be on their minimum to make that happen but the way campbell's season's gone you can't help but worry and especially when you go all in on a guy like felino you give up a first then to have like a move like that ruined because Campbell gets injured and you're stuck running Hutchinson in that would be such a disaster. So you've got to have some insurance for the season once you go all in. And that's what David Riddick is. He was the subject of my nightmares for a long 119 minutes in that stretch 
So hopefully he can give us some of that and I can breathe a little easier knowing he's right now probably the number two guy behind Campbell ahead of Hutch. I did also hear, I think, Keith say, like, Anderson will be back before the playoffs. So, yeah, they will have to give him some run because he is their number one guy since the last couple of years. And so you have to know what you have going into the playoffs. He has to get some sort of run. Uh, yeah, it's 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 not a bad problem to have that you now have three goalies who you could generally throw in there and feel decent about. I don't know. They're a fragile bunch. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, the last thing I guess about the, these trades for the Leafs is with the LTIR space created and the caption and the guarantee with some of the trades retaining salary, the Leafs still have, it looks like 2.1 million in cap space freed up from what I've heard. Uh, and so if you get a team to retain and you send them back a prospect that the cabinet of picks is a little bit lighter than before, but I think there's still room for one more move left before the deadline. And uh, I guess you'll know when we time travel in a bit on this pod, you'll see if the Leafs end up making that final move. But uh, yeah, I expect one more move there. And I feel like it's got to be a depth defenseman. It's got to be that last piece we were talking about that they're missing. It's funny. You mentioned Michael Hutchinson and uh, I mentioned Colorado a little bit. That's kind of the next trade we have. And one of the reasons why the Leafs made this trade for Big Say Dave is goaltending depth. And the team that suffered from a lack of goaltending depth the most last year was Colorado in the playoffs. Uh, They were down to Michael Hutchinson when both of their top two goalies went out. And so they go and they trade for Devin Dubnik. And this was a move that happened uh, earlier on Saturday and is a move that adds more goaltending depth uh, behind Francis um, and behind Grubauer and is a guy that, again, not your first choice to be in the net, but is has proven to be solid in previous years and is an NHL caliber goaltender. And so just another kind of safety net for the avalanche if, uh, again, the, the terrible luck that happened last year happens again in the playoffs for them. Yeah, and right now, it seems like a coin toss on the favorites to win the Cup between the Lightning and the Avalanche. Each team have their arguments. I lean Lightning. I think you still lean the Avs, but not a lot, whole lot to fix for the Avalanche, the way their season has gone, just some insurance. So that checks out. I guess I didn't know they were in on Felino. Uh, we will skip this Panthers or the Panthers trade because I want to get to the Sabres last because I have some things to say about Buffalo. Okay. Uh, so we'll move on to another trade on Saturday. The Tampa Bay Lightning defending Stanley Cup champions have acquired David Savard from the Columbus Blue Jackets. Tampa Bay gives up a first rounder and a third rounder to Columbus and they send a fourth rounder to Detroit. Similar situation as the Leafs trade, I think. Uh, Columbus retains salary and then Detroit retains a little bit of salary. And so they get a pick for their trouble. Uh, and Tampa Bay gets a solid top four, top six D. Um, he's a big body. He's not fun to play against as we, the, as the Leafs saw in that play in games uh, last year. He is he was at the top of a lot of people's lists in terms of the quality defenseman. He's right-handed, right? And so that's huge for a lot of teams. And 
of course, it had to be the Lightning that somehow managed to finagle their way in and, and get this guy. It's a huge ad for them. Um, and just, yeah, it all the teams are loading up, right? And we'll get to another contender. But, uh, yeah, this is a big move for the, the Lightning, and I don't have much more to say about it except that I know that Savard is going to be really solid for them. <laughs> yeah, like I said, my favorites to win the Cup again going in just based on the information we have and solid pickups so it's gonna be it's gonna be fun playoff hockey all around but i will there were questions about this trade deadline like how much movement there would be and what the uh willingness to pay up big for a playoff run with uh uncertain revenue ahead but those questions have been answered and gms have shown themselves willing and that uh dovetails obviously off plenty of vaccine success in the u.s especially so i mean florida we will be looking at full stadiums probably so that another part of this trade deadline we are seeing plenty of activity especially from contenders yep uh, a team, not necessarily everyone's top contender, but on the bubble, uh, it was the Montreal Canadiens. They acquired John Merrill from the Detroit Red Wings. Again, this is more of a minor move. Merrill will be a top four D uh, for Montreal. He is solid. He uh, has averaged 20 minutes of ice time a game with the Detroit Red Wings. Um, he's not necessarily a, a huge point getter, and the Habs only give up. Uh, minor league forward Hayden Verbeek and a fifth round pick. So a small, more minor transaction, but still something to steady as they uh, waived Victor Mete the other day, right before the waiver deadline. Um, so a replacement for him and, and Merrill's just a little bit more solid at that back end as the Canadians try and figure out what their defense situation is going to be going into this stretch run. Not much more to say about that move, but uh, a move nonetheless. <laughs> Yeah, a couple big ones left to get to. Uh, yeah, I guess Jeff Carter to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Mr. Clutch Playoff gets to make a run, and that yeah. could be interesting. I mean, this guy always shows up in big moments, so put him beside guys like Crosby and Malkin, and that could be very interesting. Yeah, uh, good trade for the Penguins. The Kings retain half of Carter's salary, as to be expected, everyone's talking salary, Uh, and the Penguins sent a third and a fourth round pick the other way to the Kings. Um, Again, it feels light for me, but again, Jeff Carter now is is 36. He's not the young Jeff Carter that we know who won a gold medal in 2014 with Sidney Crosby, who had those great playoff runs alongside Mr. Game 7, Justin Williams and Dustin Penner and uh, that gritty LA Kings team that won those two Stanley cups, but um, yeah, he's still a solid player. He will most likely slot in as your third center behind Malkin and Crosby when Malkin gets healthy, which is a pretty great proposition for the Penguins. Uh, They also have Teddy Bluger who's injured, but he'll be coming back soon. Um, And then for now, while Malkin's out, Carter can move up the lineup a little bit and fill that second uh, center position uh, and just help them and, uh, yeah, I think it's a guy with a ton of playoff experience who maybe doesn't have the same level of performance that he did when he was younger, but is still a guy who knows his way around the playoffs and has had success. Uh, and that's immensely valuable. 
maybe they try putting him besides beside Crosby for a bit of time or beside Malcolm for a bit of time, just as a, a guy who can finish a lot of what those two can do on the ice. And uh, I think it's a solid move and, and they don't give up a ton. Again, no prospects. You give up draft picks in a more unknown draft class. So a solid move for them and a bigger name, I think, than the actual impact will be because of his previous success, but uh, still a notable move for the Penguins. Yeah, for sure. I, I was thinking about Crosby in particular, just as a guy who manages to elevate the play of everyone around him. If, if there's anyone who's going to rejuvenate a guy like Jeff Carter and let him play as well as he possibly can. It's going to be a Crosby, a McDavid type player. So eyes on that come playoff time for sure. We've Alrighty. One more big name left to get to this one. Yes. Surprised me a little, I guess you have a lot to say on Buffalo. So I'm just going to let you lead. Yes. The Buffalo Sabres. First of all, they trade Brendan Montour to the Florida Panthers uh, for a third round pick. Small move. They get something back. Montour is going to be leaving Buffalo anyways. A lot of these guys are wanting to get out of Buffalo anyways. Uh, and the Panthers get Montour as their Ekblad replacement. He can move the puck. He's not necessarily the best defensive defenseman. Uh, fine move, both sides. Easy, done. Taylor Hall. This was a guy who somehow Buffalo snatched out of free agency because I imagine they ended up offering him the most money on a one-year deal so that he could prove himself and then go somewhere else. And that has not happened. Taylor Hall has stunk. Buffalo has stunk. Uh, the whole situation is a mess and it definitely decreases value because all the teams, all the GMs in the league, licking their chops, circling the waters going, Buffalo has to get rid of this guy because otherwise they lose him for nothing. And we can sit there and just lowball them offers and then hang up and just rub our hands together. Ha ha ha. And the Buffalo Sabres trade him early for a trade deadline trade and they get nothing. Like you're going to lose him for nothing. And then you end up trading him. Like Nick Felino grabbed a first round pick. David Savard grabbed a first round pick. David Riddick grabbed a third round pick. And the Buffalo Sabres for Taylor Hall, a Hart Trophy winner, get a second round pick and prospect Anders Bjork from the Boston Bruins, by the way, who of course got Taylor Hall because that's just great. Um, <laughs> the Sabres also give up Curtis Lazar, who is a depth forward, which again, not the biggest move, but how are you giving up <laughs> more for getting nothing? And if I just, I don't know what is going on there. Like the GM is probably answering the phone going, oh, this is the first team that wants Taylor Hall. That's great. They're probably giving me the best offer. Here you go, Taylor Hall. Like you can actually not trade someone. That is a thing. We saw the Raptors do it where they were looking for a certain amount of value and they didn't get it. So they said, no, we're going to keep Kyle Lowry because we would rather send the message than get a pile of crap for our best player because now teams in the league are looking at Buffalo already a circus, but they're now looking at Buffalo going, well, we can just offer them anything and get all of their players and we don't have to take them seriously. If I'm Buffalo there, I am waiting until the deadline, see if that price goes up as much as it can. And then if it doesn't, 
at this point, what there's nothing worse than what is happening in Buffalo. So then why would you trade Taylor Hall for nothing? Or you just keep him and you still get nothing anyways, but then at least you send message to the GMs. That's like, we have set this value. You have to hit that. And so I just, it's a total, like they just completely caved. Boston takes advantage, which makes me sick to my stomach. And yeah, I just, I have no idea what is going on in Buffalo. I feel so sorry for Sabres fans, but it's just atrocious that move and what they ended up getting. And they traded him early. Again, they traded him early. They could have waited and someone would have outbid because people want Taylor Hall, even though they know Buffalo will lose him for nothing. People still want Taylor Hall because another team like Boston could come and steal him from you. So they will still pay more because it's a bidding war. I, I'm done. I don't know if you have any more thoughts. I'm yeah. Yeah. You pretty well said it all. I, I was a bit of the hesitancy reticence I talked about on the Felino trade was man, I might've rather given up a first round pick for Hall than Felino. I'm not sure. Obviously the cap situation of both is different. And yeah, I completely agree. I, I think the one, the one wrinkle into the completely cynical business minded situation you are describing is if you have a good relationship with taylor hall as the buffalo gm and you like this kid and you want him to succeed and you want the best for him you feel bad and you want to give him a chance at a playoff run so that i'm sure makes its way somewhat into the decision making which is praiseable and critiquable at the same time i don't think that uh, it's going to get Buffalo anything in return whatsoever. And it will be interesting if this team's trajectory continues where it's at to see what kind of uh, trade bullying goes on around prospects like Reinhardt and Eichel. Reinhardt especially, in my mind, because yeah. I think it's a little more under the radar to move him but there's going to be like some carry on vulture trade offers because this franchise is just stuck in the mud and has no real hope going forward i am also if you named all the teams in the league and asked which ones do i least want to see taylor hall on i think the bruins would probably be in the top five that division is getting real interesting with the Islanders and the Capitals starting to run away at the top two battling for the first spot and you've got the um, oh my gosh you've got the Penguins and the Bruins now battling in the top two with the Flyers looking to maybe come back but the it's not very optimistic there in Philadelphia. So interesting to see that both the Penguins and the Bruins have made a splash for a goal scoring forward. And we'll have a little to compare notes on down the stretch and how that works out. Yeah. Uh, so now that I guess wraps up the trading portion of the hockey segment. Uh, again, we will time travel after this segment is done uh, to around 12 15 p.m eastern standard time when the trade deadline is or i don't actually know exactly when it is so maybe we'll trade that we'll, we'll time travel even later in the day but we'll try and get some uh closer to the deadline reactions to see if any more moves come through uh 
But for now, we will move on to a little bit of the game action over the weekend. Uh, some takeaways. The Leafs beating the Senators 6-5 to five in a game where, like, if, it, if it's against the Senators, it's never a normal game, it seems like, this season. Uh, also, a thing that I saw was if you are a team looking to beat the Leafs in the playoffs, trade for Ottawa Senators players because they seem to just produce at a much higher level against Toronto than anyone else. Uh, the Winnipeg Jets taking out the Habs in dominant fashion and the Calgary Flames taking out the Oilers in dominant fashion. Uh, as you said, Max, we have a bunch of Flames and Habs games lined up over the next two weeks, which will have huge implications for who finishes fourth in the North Division. Yeah, this is what I have my eye on mostly over the next two weeks, especially this week. I think they play three games in the next week. There's at least a back-to-back. And this is the... Well, Calgary just moved Riddick, which does signal where they're at and what they're thinking about their chances on this season. You don't move your number two goalie when you're gearing up to make one last playoff push. But you never know. That can also spark the guys and get them a little determined, a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. I think the momentum is as much in their favor right now on this Monday morning as it could possibly be going into this situation. The Habs have lost three games straight, so they're on a decline. Um, The Flames just spank the Oilers, which much needed for them. So I believe... I can't quite remember. The Habs play the Leafs tonight. I don't know if the Flames play the Leafs as well before this kicks off. Uh, it, the Leafs play a lot this week, man. Yes, but, the Leafs and Flames play on Tuesday. Yes, and then I guess Wednesday that'll kick off. So it'll be interesting to see how each team holds up against the Leaf. That'll be the final bit of momentum, but on their current trajectories, there's a chance. I think Montreal has six points and three games in hand on Calgary. So Calgary essentially needs to spank the Habs, take four out of five games, I'd say, if not five, give no extra time points, and then hope that that boosts their momentum and that the Montreal momentum, which is already on the downswing, continues. And winning that series gets them essentially close to even and then it's just about continuing the trajectory i from what you've seen from both teams over the season the money's on montreal but there's a chance for the flames and that's for sure the most interesting storyline in the canadian division this coming week and they will be cheering on their boy big save dave tonight uh my guess is he gets in tomorrow against uh against the flames which will be very interesting but uh, yeah, because he doesn't have to quarantine coming from another Canadian team. So he should get in probably on the second half of the back-to-back, which will be good. Uh, looking forward to it. I guess the last team that you wanted to talk about was the St. Louis Blues, who are on a mini run now approaching the trade deadline. I don't know how active they'll be. Some people were talking them about them selling Mike Hoffman. Uh, but if you're a team that's still on that playoff fringe, why would you get rid of a... Uh, top six goal scoring forward yeah it's he Hoffman been at the top of a lot of trade bait and 
I may have to cut this segment out if in the next couple hours he does in fact get moved and we're wrapping it up so this may or may not be heard by anyone but they they're on a three-game winning streak just in time they've re-entered the fourth playoff spot but at the same time like they're going to be battling do we either have to face the Avs in the first round or the golden knights in the first round and neither is a great proposition st louis has lost most of their games to both teams so i don't know how optimistic you can be as a blues fan but we are we do seem to be seeing the teams that have been listed at sellers at one point or another in this season um pulling back a little the nashville predators also come to mind as a team that's currently sitting in the fourth spot that has gotten real quiet at the trade deadline so we'll see if st louis or nashville makes any moves but as the fourth seeded team in each division right now who were potential sellers that seems to be quiet just an interesting trade deadline trend because hey hockey more than any sport maybe other than football anything can happen in the playoffs you really never know i mean you saw the tampa bay lightning favorites get swept in four games by the blue jackets a couple seasons back we saw the avalanche struggle against the stars uh, third period excellence so if you're st louis down but not out and absolutely i'm just getting Our- for the playoffs man yeah and you never know what will happen today i imagine so we'll actually meet probably later in the day because it, the trade deadline is three o'clock so mm-hmm. maybe around four o'clock we'll meet up and just have 15 20 minutes of instant reactions to see if any other big moves happen and then we will get the pod out uh, asap but yeah that's max's job not mine so i feel bad making promises all right we will take a quick break and we will come back for some combat corner and we are back for some combat corner ufc fight night taking place over the weekend max break it down for me yeah i caught up on the main card on sunday as i was out saturday afternoon and forgot that the abc cards drop early and the ufc matchmakers know what they're doing i guess because two abc cards they've done and they've really done quite well on both i mean any main event was going to be a letdown relative to the holloway cater fight because that was just one of the most crazy performances ever in ufc history but they got a little something of everything on this main card. And I think I really enjoyed it. I, I don't know how the non-regular MMA, oh, I'll, I watch ABC, UFC's free on ABC, I'll throw it on. I don't really know what those people thought, but I guess we'll get more metrics on it as it goes on. But uh, Mike Perry versus Daniel Rodriguez in the main card opener and Mike Perry is just going to bring a couple of things at this career. He's going to walk forward. He's going to have power that's dangerous. And he's becoming quite the wrestler as well. He has some nice takedowns. Great. No hesitation. Very fluid. Once he gets his hands clasped and it's not the highest level challenge, but it's certainly a challenge that needs to be overcome that we've seen different fighters deal with at different points and uh daniel rodriguez doing it better than anyone except jeff neal i think 
Uh, he, he's coming off that really close fight against Nicholas Dalby, which is a very different kind of matchup in like a technical kickboxing way a lot less landing a lot more faking and a lot less strikes thrown in general and rodriguez made the most of perry and kind of just turned him into a canvas to paint a striking masterpiece on uh winning 30 27 on two judges scorecards and 30 26 he was landing his one twos all night so prettily like it, it was just a difference in timing and accuracy like the split second margin reactions uh, Rodriguez showing himself to be a much better technical striker than Perry in still a very violent way. Um, like I was saying, Perry, so tough. He's going to keep walking forward. And in the first round, that looked like it could be really interesting because Rodriguez, D-Rod, landing his best on Perry, wobbling him, making him pause for a second, but then he walked right back forward and kept throwing. And like I said, he's got crazy power, though we haven't seen as much of it as of late as the whole division knows at this point. But I was really curious how Rodriguez was going to react after that first round because he landed his best multiple times over and got a little more than a wobble out of Perry who seems like a zombie that was going to keep walking forward but it really did start to add up and show I don't refer to headshots as money in the bank very often but in this case they absolutely were like in the first round you saw they'd get into that like punching range both playing a bit of a fainting game. Perry would try and land. Rodriguez's defense would hold up or he'd cut Perry off before Perry could throw. Either way, he'd find a way to land a crisp one-two. And at first, Perry would eat it, walk forward and try and land. But as the fight went on, Perry just started to go further and further back, thinking more and more defense, thinking more and more, how do I not get punched in the face? Because his nose was nasty. His eyebrow was nasty. There was swelling all over his face. And it shows that everyone's human and you land your best. Eventually, it's going to take an effect. Um, the other thing was I loved the judging because I, I really thought the first round would go to Perry and he had like a minute and a half of not very damage heavy grapple control and the first round was the closest striking round even though i do think d-rod took it so i was really happy to see like you have this somewhat close but still a sizable gap in the striking where d-rod definitely won the first three and a half minutes of striking mike perry gets some grappling success but no damage certainly not enough to overcome the gap in striking that happened in that first three and a half minutes and all three judges award the round to d-rod so call out the bad judging when you see it but also call out the judging you like when you see it and i really like that decision by the judges and i have noticed damageless grappling control getting rewarded much less often as of late so you love to see that and uh darren till offering up his liverpool pad to mike perry to come train i mean the guy i his grappling was a nice surprise in this fight his toughness was on display but the striking he was clearly a step behind throughout and that showed more and more as it went so 
the parry till bromance just one of the more entertaining things in mma we'll see what comes of that but you really got to talk about the winner in this daniel rodriguez has had a great ufc career so far uh, the only setback that really close decision loss to nicholas dalby but you come out you answer it with a performance like this and i think your stock just whatever dip it had which has got to be pretty minor after a fight like that it certainly goes beyond that dip after a performance like that and everything else has been spades for him so far so i i'm adding him to my like list of welterweight striking up-and-comers like up there with salikov um the higher end of that being guys like neil and uh muhammad so i'm really excited to see what's next for daniel rodriguez i hope he gets his crack at the top 15 real soon because I, I love to see the division turnover of guys riding heat looking promising getting their chance and not having too much stagnation so awesome fight by daniel rodriguez to open up the main card then this next fight mackenzie derns against nina nunez i i don't know if i overestimated nina nunez or i underestimated mackenzie dern but Mackenzie Dern looked the best she's looked in my eyes in her UFC career against the best opponent she's faced possibly. Maybe you argue at this point in general, but a tougher matchup than Nina Nunes. But Mackenzie Dern looked so much more urgent and so much better, really, than she's looked at any point in her UFC career. The only exception being the one where she came in like seven pounds overweight and got a first round finish but you've got to discount that with the missed weight um and nina nunez certainly a tougher opponent than i think it was amanda cooper um she played the level change bob and weave game at distance but didn't play it for too long to let the better striker start making reads and getting into her rhythm as the younger fighter she used her athleticism some explosive movement to hide the striking sloppiness brought it right in close um nunez shrugged her off once but dern stayed determined got like this beautiful sloppy single leg, high single leg she like raised the single leg up looked to take her for a ride um uh, couldn't quite get the momentum and the speed going to drive that takedown down but she stayed with it and threw in a foot trip in there which was good enough to get to full guard and from there it was just workmanlike from Dern um Nunez knew she didn't want Mackenzie Dern getting any farther out of full guard but I think the mentality there is a bit dangerous because if you're looking to hold in full guard you're not looking to get up and if you try and create that space with the foot on the hips like the better grappler can take advantage when you create that space and explode into half guard full guard but if you give them three four minutes to work they're gonna get there anyway and that's what happened uh, Dern patiently makes her way out of the full guard gets to mount and then I loved this. She just ground and pound. I mean, jujitsu practitioners, black belts are going to have great hip pressure from top control and be a little better at uh, not getting bucked off from full mount, maybe than wrestlers, because that's a little more their world. And Dern threw in a lot of ground and pound there and mount, just 
threatening, looking really dominant, but always looking. And as soon as Nunez gave up her arm one way to try and protect from the ground and pound, Dern snatched it. Um, and again, Nunez knew what was coming. She did her best to hold on to that arm and she almost made it out of the round. But again, Dern at that highest level of grappling is just she had minutes to work she was in a preferred position she had an arm so that's 90 percent of it from there it was just a matter of patience adjusting angles taking your time she didn't sit back too early and snatched the arm bar with like five ten seconds left in the round so i loved everything from mackenzie dern i loved the urgency to make this a grappling fight i loved the takedown she showed um i loved the ground and pound to set up that arm bar i talk all the time about using striking to set up the takedowns and vice versa and how those mix together this we saw some nice wrestling and jujitsu synergy by during this performance um so mackenzie dern beats the fifth ranked strawweight in the world and has it had a great run since her loss to Amanda Ribas, going three and zero in twenty twenty, and and a win here in April, early to start. It's the question is where does she sit in the strawweight division? Is she title ready, champ material? And you look at the top of the division, and there's no. It feels like there's no way right now. I mean. Yoani Anjaychek, Weili Zhang, and Rose Namajunas are just a tier of elite level mixed martial arts higher than anyone else in the division. You've seen that play out in the really close fights that Anjaychek has had with Namajunas the second time and uh, Weili Zhang in that crazy fight and the dominance she put on Michelle Watterson, who fights close with everyone else like a Carla Esparza and Angela Hill so Dern looking like she can beat any of those girls Carla Esparza Angela Hill Michelle Watterson but I don't I mean those three just have such high level striking such good at either offensive or defensive grappling I don't see Dern as having the striking to stand with them and she's not some sort of Tatiana Suarez dominant wrestler where you feel super confident about her getting into the ground obviously if she has full mount on any of these girls that's an incredibly dangerous and position for them and optimistic for Dern but I really I they'd have to like slip and fall and then close their eyes for three seconds for that to happen because I don't see Dern hitting a takedown on any of them so more work ahead for Mackenzie Dern I think she's got to sit in this position she's in defended a little before challenging her way up um, working with Jason Perillo a great striking coach so you know that part of her game is only going to get better I did love the takedown she hit, but she's just got to drill that a couple more thousand times, get in some reps against, um, I know Angela Hill's going to fight Amanda Ribas. I love that. Carla Esparza fighting a Chinese prospect whose name I can't remember. That uh, second fight, the Esparza one, I'd love to see Dern fight the winner of. I, I think just more time at the top of the division to develop the striking and continue to improve the wrestling to best cement her jujitsu but she fought uh saturday like a fighter who knew jujitsu was her strength and 
optimized it the best I've seen her do in the mixed martial arts realm. So great job by Mackenzie Dern. Then this next fight, Julian Marquez, Sam Alvey. I I was kind of surprised to see the UFC give Sam Alvey a main card slot on a free card broadcast to millions of people because you know almost certainly what he's going to do and it's often not too exciting he wants to back up against the cage bring the strike count to as few as possible where if it stays low he's got a chance to win on points and he always has that knockout power so a real matador style from alvi and julian marquez played the bull as well as anyone i've seen do against him he got in there staying just out of striking reach mixed kept his shots short and efficient and mixed them up really well basically four weapons a jab a straight a body jab a body straight just the quickest punches you can throw with the straightest trajectory so you're not going to get caught in the pocket for too long as short a time as you can be in there he fainted he went head body head body Obviously, you're going to eat a couple shots doing that. That's Sam Alvey's whole game. But Marquez managed to land the heavier shots, managed to land more shots, and just played that game so well. Started to draw out Alvey, I think frustrating him landing more than he's used to getting landed on. The feints also working. When Sam Alvey starts to come forward and swing a little, one of those straights really lands, and that's when Marquez mixes it up and goes to like a longer combo more than just two shots and a hook a little more damaging shot really staggers alvi and just shows ferocious finishing instincts uh, punches around the ear area a hot topic in mixed martial arts right now we ha- i haven't been able to get into that too much i i don't want to speak on the alvarez decision without knowing um more than I currently know about that whole thing. But Marquez kept them really close on the ear and really fast, successive. Kept uh, Alvi hurt, maybe didn't drop him, but like did not let him get his wits about. And then that rear naked choke was beautiful with no hooks in. Um, I, I think Alvi was ready to tap right at the last second but he didn't have long because he went unconscious real quick Uh, you don't see a ton of chokes from that position which speaks both to the squeeze strength of uh marquez and but also just the recognition in that kind of transition because normally fighters are shooting right back up to their feet when their back's given and maybe you see a backpack taken but marquez knew in that transition right when to pounce and he did and it was a great performance by him calling out like all the star studded players on the kansas city chiefs and uh getting a response so this guy knows what he's doing with his post-fight call outs so fun performance from marquez it's great to see him come back from injury and uh, made it as entertaining as you can against sam alvey then this next fight was maybe even more exciting than the main event. You had two really highly rated featherweight prospects going at it in Arnold Allen and Sadiq Youssef. Sadiq Youssef has just looked so dangerous against everyone he's fought with his power. I mean, his arms look like the arms of a welterweight, not a featherweight. You saw in like the Andre Feely fight how dangerous even his jab is in terms of the power it punches and 
Arnold Allen did as effective a job and more so than anyone's done against Yusuf. He mixed it up so well. I mean, this guy's so such a talented mixed martial artist. Definitely was taking the skill advantage into this fight. I loved his footwork. He was mixing the diagonal angles in with the stray angles and making Yusuf chase. He set up a takedown early in that first round where he had Yusuf on a string following him diagonally, and he just got to step down, and Yusuf created the takedown angle for him. Um, but also a super talented striker is Allen and he's had that advantage against most people he's fought and by mixing it up on Yusuf he managed to maintain that striking advantage he dropped him in the first two rounds in different ways first he frames him off with the right hand you don't see that too often he just like shoved him off and then as Yusuf like stepped in Allen had the left straight waiting for him then in the second round, he faked that left straight, got Yusuf thinking about him and threw a high kick, which just grazed off the temple, but wobbled and dropped him. I mean, it was also a great showing for Yusuf. I mean, the, the guy didn't lose a step even when faced with those two uh, damaging strikes. He did everything he could, but Allen just never did the same thing for too long sometimes he was really moving sometimes he was standing in the middle bringing down the speed a little sometimes he was offensively grappling he worked his clinch game just did mixed it up well enough against such a dangerous striker to never let the guy get too comfortable and start making reads and getting into his own zone he did play it a little safe in the third round where he just took every opportunity he could to grapple, which he lost the round. It, it was definitely a very close round. You could argue Allen won it. There not a ton happened in it, but especially I mentioned those arms of Yusuf making him grapple so much also just lowers the chance of getting knocked out because those arms are going to be that much more filled with blood, that much more fatigued. So safe performance in the third round i kind of wish this had been a five rounder it would have been real interesting to see where yusuf's cardio was at as i think alan made him grapple so much that never really saw him hurt alan whatsoever so alan on a eight fight win streak now in the featherweight division which is the division's highest and it's going to be interesting to see how quickly he can get back in there. I mean, this guy's been a highly rated prospect for a long time in the division now. And it's funny how the rankings work. You often have like guys get these wins and you feel like they should be ranked and they're not in the moment. And then older fighters who have kind of stagnated in the rankings just fall out on their owns. And, and then like a number magically appears next to the, prospect's name and that's kind of what happened with both Allen and Yusuf but Allen now officially like in the top 10 of the featherweight division and you just want to see that division get moving because there's so many interesting title challengers and awesome contenders so hopefully I mean caters out that was the first guy who came to mind but he's got to take his time on the concussion protocol i think josh emmett deserves a chance to move up after the performance he had against burgos who was fighting barboza so there's so many interesting guys in that mix and 
just hope to see Allen get in there. Um, not a lot lost on the stock of Yusuf. He'll go back to the gym, maybe need a couple of lower-ranked opponents, but a couple impressive performances, which he's more than capable of, and I'm sure he's right back in there. But Arnold Allen hurting, looking dominant, looking safe against as dangerous a power puncher as you have at featherweight. It's a huge feather in the cap for him. So especially because this guy trains at TriStar out of Montreal, hope to see him continue to make his way up. Then we get to the main event, which not, I guess, all that surprising in hindsight, but Marvin Vittori puts on a grapple clinic against Kevin Holland, which is the second time he's received one in the past month and takes a safe, dominant decision over Holland. (laughs) Hard to have a ton of takeaways from this fight, really. Holland's takedown defense was just not up to par. I mean, there were so many times where it it was like the first effort, and if not the first effort, then always the second effort for Vittori where he got the takedowns. He didn't ever have to chain the attempts together. Once he got his hands locked, which he did way too easily, way too many times, he was able to get Holland down. So it's hard to say a ton because Adesanya just is not going to make it that easy to get his hands locked, let alone to close that distance. And it takes, we saw in the Blahovich fight, if early this guy's great on takedown defense, you need to feint him out, set it up with strikes and get in there. And even then, like only when Adesanya is tired, only on the second takedown effort, is that when it really starts to materialize. So it like the, low bar or low takedown defense performance by Holland doesn't fill me with confidence or anything that Vittori is going to have an easy time taking down Holland or Adesanya. It is start to give you an indication of the kind of fighter Vittori is and how he beats a guy like Hermanson on the feet for the most part. Then he beats a guy like Holland on the ground for the most part of well-rounded fighter who will take the path of least resistance but Holland landed just enough on the feet that makes you feel like Izzy could of course do the same and more so I think Whitaker has a fantastic chance to take the next title shot I mean I think his case is already just so much stronger than Vittori's Will's wins like guys over Till and Cannoneer it's more impressive than wins over guys like uh, the Holland and Hermanson so I'd already kind of give Whitaker the next title shot I as long as he wins if he wins impressively over Gastelum all the better but I can't really imagine a scenario where Whitaker wins and um, Vittori deserves a title shot over him just looking on their past couple wins and kind of not impressive enough from Vittori in the striking defense and it's not his fault he didn't get to show off better grappling offense but you need like a ground and pound or submission finish to raise the stock on a performance like that when we just saw Brunson do more or less the same thing If Gastelum wins, it gets a little more interesting because, I mean, Whitaker would be a way bigger win than Vittori has, but the 
overall momentum of uh, Vittori greater than Gastelum, as well the re the rematch I think is more interesting from Vittori's perspective than Gaslam in terms of time frame and in terms of I mean Izzy was 30 seconds away from putting away Gaslam in that fight but both have strong cases so it really a steady stay performance on the stock of Vittori it doesn't rise it doesn't drop and that's where it's at. So we're going to have to see what happens next weekend to say who deserves the next title shot the most. I, I think it'll be Whitaker. And as one other note, Kevin Holland posted something funny on his Instagram. Someone saying like, man, this guy, get this guy to Dagestan and just posts a photo of a plane, like see y'all in nine weeks. So that's the other thing I want to say. You look at Kevin Holland's UFC career thus far. He enters the middleweight division, gets his experience against, I don't want to be rude, but the kind of journeyman level. After he gets a bit of experience there, he shows a ton of dominance in the striking with that fabulous 2020 he had. And uh, we might be seeing the same thing. He's cracked the top 10 now. So he's gotten his experience there. Now he's got to go back, make improvements. And they're not, they're pretty basic fundamental improvements, which is discouraging. And like, how does he not already do these things on the takedown defense, but encouraging and like, man, if he does them, could this guy just that easily be like a top five contender? So be very interesting to see what's next for Kevin Holland. Then the other thing I wanted to tell you about is the McGregor-Poirier trilogy is starting to get a little more interesting just off of Twitter beef and drama. I mean, these two, Conor McGregor has been putting out this like gentlemanly atmosphere. It worked for him fine in the Cerrone fight. Didn't change anything up going into this Poirier fight. Maybe a bit of PR, mature rehabilitation, but it seems like that might be over. He said something about no more Mr. Nice Guy after the fight. Um, he, and Dustin Boyer, I don't know if it was a call out, but just like a public note, I said, mentions like, hey, you promised you were going to give some, donate some money to my charity organization. We haven't received that check. McGregor says something like, it's a donation, not a debt, and you guys haven't followed through to the level that we expect charities to do before we make a donation it seems like a bit of a no more mr nice guy like he's able to stay humble in victory and do that sort of thing but not so humble and classy in defeat and hoping to get in poirier's head a little i think the next press conference is going to be a lot more interesting a lot more tense than the last one um bringing back to the mcgregor of old so i'd keep an eye on how that press conference goes i mean mcgregor's never lost two in a row he i really can't imagine he always finds excuses he always finds ways to write off guys performances like he says like poirier says i'm gonna meet you in the middle july 10th mcgregor's like well you 
you went on the back foot last time and shot for a takedown in the first 30 seconds but we'll see what you do as if that's not like just a good way to fight especially against a guy like McGregor who is gonna walk forward and throw really heavy as if like the only way to beat McGregor is to do the same thing as him and beat him as if using different fight tactics to weaken the opponent's strength and then get him where you want him isn't just really excellent fighting so we'll see but i'm starting to circle the date on that first press conference because i think we're gonna see a little more trash talk a little more of an effort to get under the opponent's skin but the diamond is such an aptly suited nickname for the career Dustin Poirier's had. He's just faced such a murderer's row of guys, especially in recent years at the top level. I mean, you main event that fight against Max Holloway. You main event against Khabib in his home country. He's taken on McGregor now. So I, I really you've got to put him up there in terms of mental toughness with the guys who have been unfazed by McGregor and Diaz and Habib. So I, I would be shocked if it works or does anything. I think Poirier was ready for the trash talk last time. I think he'll be ready for it this time, but this fight starting to get intriguing. All right, that's going to wrap up this combat corner. We'll be back Friday to preview the Whitaker Gastelum card. All right, three days since our last pod. So that's what, 70 baseball games played over that span. Uh, tell me about the weekend. Yeah, of course. Uh, I just want to talk about a couple of the cool things that happened in baseball over the weekend and a couple of controversial things. Uh, the first of which being San Diego native Joe Musgrove throws the first no-hitter in San Diego Padres history. Very happy for him. Shout out to Joe Musgrove. And uh, not the historical moment you would expect from a Padres team that is uh, built on hitting home runs. So uh, congrats to the pitcher on the other side of the, the uh, mound for, for the Padres. And, and that's a pretty special moment that he'll never forget. Another really awesome thing that happened this weekend, Trey Mancini uh, of the Baltimore Orioles had his battle with colon cancer and he beat it and he comes back and he hits his first home run since beating the cancer. Really, really cool moment. Very similar to like an Oscar Lindblom situation for uh, the Philadelphia Flyers. And so I just wanted to shout out Trey. That's another great thing that happened. Um, And then I wanted to move into a bit of controversy last night, the Philadelphia Phillies and Atlanta Braves tied at six, a sacrifice fly uh, ball thrown to the plate. Darno, Travis Darno applies the tag uh, to the runner, Alec Baum, who is declared safe at home plate. Um, upon review, looking at the replays, it seems as though uh, Mr. Baum's never touched any part of home plate and was definitely tagged. Uh, and after further review, the umpires still deem him safe based on the fact that there was no, uh, I guess, the what are the words they do? Uh indisputable evidence or no evidence to overturn. Um, And it's just another moment in baseball where they continue to get things wrong and is a greater uh, theme for many sports where more and more replay is being added into these games and not necessarily coming out with the right result. Uh, 
of course, we've had the offside conundrum in hockey and how they've tried to make adjustments to it. And of course, the NBA reviews take forever now. It's like every time a ball goes out of bounds or there's uh, some sort of block charge or if they spend five, 10 minutes and then come back and make a call and it really doesn't have too much of an impact on the overall game. And so, yeah, the sports still need to figure out either a, how to get the replay going a lot faster in terms like they should always have someone looking at it as at every play as soon as it happens, just to be able to confirm much more quickly rather than having this convoluted process of the umpires calling the replay center somewhere, them taking so many looks at it with all the different angles. Also, how do we not have cameras like everywhere now that can get every angle? I still don't understand how, there can be angles where you just aren't seeing the ball. It's, it seems wild to me with the amount of technology we have. And also like, I don't know, sensor technology. You can basically just determine when the ball, if the ball touched someone and if someone touched the plate, like that, there should be ways to innovate the game without it taking so much time. And then they come back and they get the call wrong. I just, I, I don't get it. And it's either you got to do like you got to innovate in different ways or you just don't have it at all and just stick with human error because it seems like now with more and more replay, people are becoming okay with that again. It's like I'd rather have human error than to sit and wait for a call that who knows if they'll get right. Um, And so that is an interesting thing that baseball has to come up with reasoning for because they (laughs) things continue to just go wrong for them and i don't know what the exact fix is it really sucks because it took away from such an excellent series from uh the bright young star ronald acuna who had nine hits in the series and had this great play yesterday where he basically hit a routine ground ball to the shortstop and just beat it out he just outran it and which you never see like it just like such a small thing but just so cool that he He's a right-handed batter too, which means an extra half second coming out of the box. And he still beats out a routine ground ball to short. So really cool. The last thing in baseball I want to touch on is Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, they finally have the bats show up this season. Uh, 15 runs they put on the Angels on Saturday night, late into the night due to rain delay. And then unfortunately supposed to go up against Shohei Otani yesterday, uh, but the game gets rained out. And so that will be replayed at some point later on in the season they'll have a double header with the seven inning games which uh i'm definitely all for uh, but they start now their series against the yankees today and are get the lovely matchup of garrett cole i believe which is not going to be a fun one but let's see if the bats can continue uh the momentum they had on saturday looking forward to seeing some more blue jays baseball back in action today we will move on uh to the masters and a really cool moment. Again, the Masters just loves generating those. Uh, Hideki Matsuyama wins the Masters this year. Is the first Japanese player to ever do so. So really cool moment for him and for Japan. Uh, and there were lots of people who were very worried about his putting. And that was going to be difficult on those uh, hard greens. But with his incredible approach play. And then he was able to make putts when he needed to, uh, he had a great lead going into Sunday and then, um, just was able to maintain it and pull it out. So really happy for him and and congratulations. Uh, funny moment throughout the tournament was, uh, Will Zalatoris 
getting compared to the caddy in uh, Happy Gilmore. And so he embraced it and had some uh, Happy Gilmore quotes on his uh, irons as he was going through the tournament and he was playing it up. Uh, that was a funny thing to watch. And uh, Corey Connors, the Canadian from uh, Listowel, uh, finished tied for eighth in the tournament. Really, really impressive weekend for him. Uh, he also had a hole in one on Saturday, which was really cool to see. But yeah, shout out to Corey Connors, another uh, up and well, he's 30 now, but uh, we always had Mike Weir, who for some reason was a famous Canadian golfer. But now we've got these guys, Connors, Mackenzie Hughes have been really solid for a couple of years. And uh, just golf in Canada is not as popular as it used to be, but maybe it's making a comeback. And of course, we've got the lovely Brooke Henderson, who is consistently in the, at the top of the world, but uh, waiting for that big LPGA tour event before we can jump back on the, the Brook train. But yes, uh, interesting weekend at the Masters. That's kind of it for my bit of ramble, not nearly the same as Monday's show. Uh, we will take one more break and come back to talk some basketball. Let's talk some basketball, shall we? Uh, we will go from Friday on. Uh, we'll talk a little bit of wraps, but I want to kick off with just Friday night seemed to be a night of big performances on the stat sheet. Uh, Jason Tatum dropping 53, Zach Levine dropping a 50 burger, uh, Trey Young with 42, and then Zion had 37, 15, and 8, which is just ridiculous. Uh, he has, I don't even know, I can't even say he's been turning it up because he's just been a wrecking monster all year. Uh, and the Pelicans are finally one game within the Warriors for that last play-in game uh, and two games behind the San Antonio Spurs for the ninth seed. Uh, they get another big wing last night against the Cavaliers, uh, despite trying to give Brandon Ingram the ball late in games rather and letting Bledsoe shoot threes with a minute left on the clock. Like, just give it to Zion. There's no one on that team who can guard him. Uh, and so... Despite their best efforts, the Pelicans are still very close to the play in games. And I think that's all that's left in this season that Adam Silver could ask for is having Zion. Because as it stands right now, if the Warriors somehow turn it on and the Spurs are the ones that follow the play in games, you have Ja Morant, you have uh, Zion Williamson, you have Steph Curry, and then uh, you have Luka Doncic as you're like four stars to promote in the playing games. And those are like massive stars. So if you're the NBA there, you're kind of hoping that the Spurs slide out because they just, the Rosen love him. Obviously we love him, but it's not the same level of star in the national media as, as those other guys. And so that's what the NBA is probably hoping for in those playing games. We'll talk some Raptors here. Um, a tough loss last night to the Knicks. They will get there, uh, but it seems like the NBA playoff picture in the Eastern Conference is starting to solidify. Uh, the Bulls have two-game lead over the Raps uh, with that loss to the Knicks last night, and it just feels like they're running out of time to really catch up. Uh, <laughs> of course, Gary Trent Jr., awesome, had a career-high 44 points against the Cavaliers, uh, on Saturday night, and the Raps score a franchise record 87 points in the first half. Just ridiculous. They, like, couldn't miss. And Gary Trent himself went 17 for 19 from the field in the game, which is – and, like, a lot of those shots were difficult 
hand in the face, step backs, like tough shots that he just was making, which is like awesome to see because it really shows you the ceiling that he has as a player. Like Raptors fans cannot get enough of this guy already. Um, We love Norm, but Gary Trent just, it seems like he has an even greater degree of difficulty shot making ability. Uh, lots of Knicks fans last night were getting frustrated when he was making some big shots down the stretch and uh, some great defense played by the Knicks. They're really, really aggressive late in those games, like really smothering physical defense, which will be interesting come playoff time. Uh, And Trent was able to make quite a few tough shots. Um, And uh, Malachi Flynn has really been playing well these last couple of games. His defense primarily, he's got really active hands, like I was saying, similar for Van Vliet. Uh, he gets in those lanes and knocks balls loose. And he had 20 points and 11 assists against the Cavaliers on Saturday and uh, less than that last night against the Knicks. But is a kid who's still getting his reps. Kyle Lowry is finally back. So a little bit of pressure taken off of him. But he really, in this fourth quarter yesterday, led the team. And that's kind of where I want to start in this Knicks game is the beginning of the fourth quarter, the Raptors bench, uh, had scored 14 points in in that fourth quarter and were beating the Knicks starters. Uh, and finally, the Knicks had to take a t- timeout, but like Watanabe hit a three, Malachi hit two big shots uh, and kicked it out to Rodney Hood for a three-pointer. It was just great work and kind of a mishmash of guys who hadn't necessarily played together. You had Hood coming from the Blazers trade, Malachi Flynn coming from the G League, hadn't played a ton with the Raps. Freddie Gillespie, who's on a 10-day contract, who's been showing some great energy for the Raptors and some good screen setting. And then, of course, the newly added Kem Birch, who came in last night and started with uh, a bricked baby hook and some bricked free throws, but in the end, got his rhythm a little bit. Him and Kyle developed a little bit of chemistry. He had a layup on the on the, on the the roll and the pick and roll. Um, He's a guy who plays solid defense and it doesn't necessarily show up on the stat sheet, but he knows when to help. Uh, and he can definitely be uh, someone who dissuades opponents around the rim. And so already you see like Aaron Baines didn't play at all last night. Nick Nurse already loving what he's seeing from Ken Birch, which means we're going to see a lot more of him going forward. Uh, should be interesting to see. I wonder if that means Freddie Gillespie stays if Ken Birch provides a lot of the same thing that he provides, even though I love the energy Gillespie was giving. It just seems like he has zero offensive production unless he's getting the ball right at the rim. Um, and then after all this excitement about the bench and a lot of people were all like, this is the bench that we've been waiting for. This is Raptors basketball. Uh, starters kind of come back in the Knicks turn up the defensive intensity and the wraps kind of let things go down the end. And uh, last possession, they're down to Kyle Lowry gets a great read on the pass out of the double team, steals the ball, gives it to Pascal. Who's the guy you want to have it in transition. Pascal double dribbles because he hesitates. He thought he was going to pass to the corner. So he touches, but then he dribbled and went for the layup. Just, Really tough one for Pascal. Feels like he sold that game. He was 5 of 18 from the field. Uh, Really, really struggled all night against Julius Randle. And just you can see this whole season has just been taxing for him. Uh, You were hoping he'd get a fresh start after the rough playoffs he had, but just it's continued to compound for him. 
and really like the Raptors need to get out of this season, avoid any major injuries and really just get a reset, especially for Pascal. And uh, we'll see what he can come back with next year, but because he's such a huge part of this team and he still can play solid defense. He had some great defensive moments last night. He also had some terrible defensive moments last night, uh, giving up a backdoor cut to Randall with like a minute and a half left for a dunk and uh, leaving RJ Barrett for kind of the dagger three-pointer late in the game. So yeah, it's things show up a lot more when you're losing in uh, Pascal. I don't know what it needs to be, but he needs to figure things out because right now it's been really tough for him and I don't know where the Raptors go from here. It's there's still only two games out of that 10th seed. It's still very attainable, but they're running out of time. And this Bulls team in theory has a higher ceiling now with the Vucevic trade. So you just, who are you, what are you chasing at this point? The opportunity to get to run into this Knicks team. And even if you get through them just to get slapped by the Brooklyn Nets, like, yeah, I just I don't see what the the end is for the Raps. Just look for getting these guys more looks. Get Ken Birch more looks. Maybe he resigns in the offseason. Uh, get Bembry more looks because he's been playing well for them recently. Get Malachi more looks so he can improve and and maybe take the minutes off your core a little bit because they play a ton of minutes all the time. Fred, Kyle consistently lead the league in minutes. OG and Pascal are up there too. So let's let's turn it down a little bit, let them ride it out, see what happens in the draft and and come back next year, fresh at home in Toronto. All right. Uh, Max, you were telling me before pod started, you watched this game yesterday, Sunday afternoon, uh, the Denver nuggets who were on a seven game winning streak or eight game winning streak, pardon me, fall to the Boston Celtics. And uh, you had some takeaways from this game that you wanted to bring to the table. Yeah, I mean, eyes on Denver Nuggets after what you were saying Friday about them and what was going well. And Jokic, just always such a fun player to watch. So not a lot going on Sunday afternoon. I thought I'd throw it on. And that's what I thought I was seeing early in that third quarter. Uh, Jokic really picked it up and had some magical passing plays as per the standard by him at this point, I guess. And... um the Denver coach feeling pretty comfortable <laughs> with that third quarter wrapping up like something around a minute 30 left. They're up by double digits, decides to give Jokic a little break before they close and uh, runs the bench. And the Celtics had Kemba Walker and Jalen Brown out there against the Nuggets bench and really made them pay in that mismatch. Went on a 9-0 and run to close out that last minute something in the third quarter. Um, brutal, brutal play right at the end of the third quarter where Nuggets looking for that last second shot, tried something kind of lazy, and uh, Kemba just snatched like one of those point guard block steals and drove it all the way up for a and one three-point play. And one of the Nuggets players, Brown, uh, he was consistently matched up against Langford. And either Brown doesn't know how to play basketball and is just a pure athlete, or Langford flops on everything because there, Brown, Langford drew three fouls off of uh, Brown. I think two offensive, one defensive. But just every time you had Brown, like 
throwing a bit of an elbow, pushing a little body, something you see all the time, and Langford just falling off him and the refs blowing it. Then that momentum kept going at the start of the fourth, and it was kind of just a reminder that at this the pinnacle, the highest level of sports, like it doesn't take much, and you have to play so well even when you're up in games that should be put away, because a minute like. How often are you worried about like one minute and a bit left in a quarter and like things totally going sideways? But that's exactly what happened. Um, I mean, Michael Porter Jr., I think one of your favorite players, was having some tough three-point making. Jokic, he had two, like, you can't ask for much better attempts, like from corner threes, didn't get them. Mm. And then some poor decision making when the Nuggets starters do come back in I think they were already down at that point but like Porter Jr who was something like one for six one for seven at that point tried like a in transition 180 like step back deep three which was just kind of what are you doing like time and place for those shots especially when you're not making threes and Jokic that passing magic just dissipated and Celtics kicked it into a slightly higher gear on defense, a little aggression. You don't call it a four check. I don't know what you call it. And saw Jokic pick up another triple double, but it was kind of just a, it ended up being a 31 and three run by the Celtics to close out a double digit deficit and take their own, which I mean, it's just one game, but it did. I was thinking about what you're saying about like the depth of the Nuggets being a weakness. Maybe not something we see come playoff time, but interesting way to see the winning streak snapped. Yeah, you it, you see it though. Like it's huge when they didn't have Jamal Murray. It, yes. As soon as he's not in that game, where is your clutch shot making coming from? Jokic usually is a great shot creator. The Boston Celtics figured out a way to really get in his head and were really blitzing him whenever he caught the ball in the post. And yeah, he, he had difficulty creating good shots in that game. They matched uh, Tatum up on him in the fourth mm-hmm. quarter. And in the third quarter, it had been Williams. Yeah. Who, Jokic wasn't having a great night making shots. Like he had a, he was able, I mean, seven foot, those are... <laughs> you're dropping the ball in the basket basically anywhere within the paint. So when he was able to get close, like he had this hilarious floater attempt, he was able to draw some fouls at mid range and get his offense going that way. But Williams was biting on like every three point pump fake he put up and Tatum just didn't bite. And there was one play that stood out where Tatum just at the mid range played like tough nose defense. And Jokic was just looking to like draw contact and get the foul call. And the refs didn't give it to him. And he gave up after that play, really. I think he came off onto the bench like a minute or two after that. But I mean, I, you know how I feel about fouls and the NBA. So it was just, uh, I mean, great defense from Tatum to kind of cinch it or close it on Jokic and take the only like clutch option the Nuggets had at that point away, I think. Yeah. And beyond this game, I would say this is big as a momentum builder for the Celtics because this is a tough Western Conference team that was in a groove, had a big lead. And this Celtics team has been consistently called mentally weak this season. And a team that actually has struggled finding its identity. Um, I don't know what the like issue might be or where there's 
difficulties, uh, some locker room stuff that has possibly trickled out into the media, but this was a big win for them to figure out how to defend a high caliber offensive team and uh, move the ball a little bit more and have contributions from guys that wasn't just Tatum and Brown in isolation situations. And so it's a big win for Boston. They need to really make sure they're staying out of those playing games and moving up to avoid those first round matchups with uh, those top three seeds. Cause those are the, t- the class of the Eastern conference. And uh, yeah, it, it could, we could be headed towards, Boston starting to pick up momentum near the end of the season. They've made three of the last four Eastern Conference finals. They are a team with playoff pedigree, uh, have struggled in the regular season, but you can't count them out when you've got two guys who could be the best guys in this series at any given point. So a big, hopefully, momentum builder for the Celtics. Uh, and maybe they can keep that going. We shall see. It's been an on and off ride for them. <laughs> All righty. We have reached the end of our basketball segment, but now it is time for me to uh, share my NBA Top Shot pack opening. We're going to take a quick break and then come back uh, with everything set up and ready to roll. And we're back, going to wrap up the show with an NBA Top Shot pack opening. Last time we had a Giannis pull, fingers crossed for something big that I can make a clickbaity headline out of. Here we go. Yes, sir. Opening them up. Open this pack, baby. We got the music going. Three cards here. Again, I'm going to have to narrate the outcomes uh, for those listening on the podcast. But if you want to see the uh, human reactions, check us out on our YouTube page. The first card is being opened. It is a block from Chetty Osman of the Cleveland Cavaliers, a pretty low or pretty high serial number, uh, 27,919. Nice chase down on Jordan Clarkson here, uh, but nothing too spectacular to kick off. <laughs> the pack opening we have our second card a dunk from the new york new orleans pelicans josh hart uh Kira lewis misses and hart with the putback jam against the sacramento kings uh a thirteen thousand three hundred twenty-five serial number again nothing too special josh hart is a collector on top shot though uh, so could be useful for future um criteria for pack openings because there is a new challenge that top shot is doing where if you have collectors of the cards uh, actual nba athletes and you have them in a showcase you can win packs or uh top shot credit so just an interesting promo that they're doing our final card in the pack is another chetty osman block we're doubling up here uh a slightly lower serial number at seventeen thousand one hundred thirty-five. Uh, the exact same play, <laughs> not the best pack opening, but again, $9 for me, entertainment for everyone else, uh, add it to the collection. I've now got 17 cards in the collection, uh, and continuing to enjoy my time collecting these cards. And I hope you appreciated the pack opening as well. Nothing too exciting there, but always 
fun to open a couple packs. I know Max and I have been playing a lot of 2K My Team recently. I opened up a Galaxy Opal out of position Chris Weber yesterday, uh, which is really really cool. I sold my Grant. I sold my Grant Hill uh, for a decent price, but now I want him back. <laughs> yeah. Man, I'm after watching Jokic, I'm like constantly looking at that Galaxy Opal one, but <laughs> yeah, he's just he's very slow in the game. The Galaxy um, Opal one has good athleticism. Okay, okay. Cause I need I need my centers to have decent lateral quickness. Uh <laughs> yeah. I've been loving Shaq as a center. Oh yeah. The, oh yeah, he's pretty dominating. The pink diamond one is like I think I got it for 13k or something on the market. <sighs> Yeah, I got my I got my pink diamond Vucevic, who's been great for me. But yeah. might be time for an upgrade soon. Mm-hmm. I used uh, the earnings from my Grant Hill to get a couple of uh, diamond contracts. Oh, nice! I yeah, I guess I really should have done that way early in the season, and it would have paid off by now. Yeah, I'm just constantly rotating through players. Okay, so like some sometimes i'll look for players that already have the diamond contracts on the market but Mm. just gotta have fun with it and (laughs) just make the lineup that's whatever like the most fun to play with rather than the thing i'm especially proud about is i am i've i'm done all the uh the weekly challenges i've been able to complete those and some of them were really really difficult to do but uh yeah i've completely I run out of steam on that. Like there were two seasons where I got like into the mid thirties on the level. And I I just don't have the same motivation to do it. Like I even went and picked up all the like radioactive players ready to go through those challenges and was just kind (laughs) of sold them. Cause I was like, "Eh, I don't feel like using these guys. They're not fun. That Mark Eaton card is crap. (laughs) Yeah. He's a slow dude. Uh, but somehow a really pain in the butt to play against in triple threat for some reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing I needed to get really into 2K is I just need better internet connection. That's the last piece of the puzzle for me. And then I'll be Thanos with all the infinity stones. I, just internet connection. <laughs> I was having some fun with a triple threat online because for the longest time I felt like I could either build like a diamond pink diamond team and get slapped by like galaxy opal guys or if I went like all amethyst then I was either matching up against like pros who are all amethyst or still getting slapped by galaxy opal guys so I had a moment where I was like well I actually have three quality players I can throw let's see how they do and I had some fun with that but yeah yeah, the connection still yeah I I kind of I tried doing the my team limited with like the bronze silver gold players this last week. And I don't know, man, it's yeah. I really need good internet connection. You get frustrated very easily. I like the idea behind limited. Cause like, it's fun to just over time you build this collection and then every week it's like, okay, what's the challenge. And even if I don't play limited that week, it's fun to say like, okay, with the collection I have, what's the best lineup I can assemble that matches this criteria. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that might be one of the main things I'll be up to this week. Uh, finished classes last week and I will. I have a couple more projects and exams to wrap up, but getting very close to the end of my university uh, go at things, and uh, 
yeah, that is, <laughs> yeah, good thing. All good things come to an end, including this podcast. And uh, that's where we're at right now. want to thank you, everyone, for listening. Continue to check out the YouTube channel. If you want to see my uninspired reaction to the NBA Top Shot Pack openings, uh, we also might have some content later from the NHL trade deadline. If it is not in this time traveling podcast today and nothing major happens, then we might just release it separately on YouTube. For, so stay alert for announcements on that. Uh, but if it is on this, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it's hard to know now. It's very many hours in the future. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Max, I'll let you take it away. Time travels, time travels a mind fuck, ain't it? Sports <laughs> Next Door signing out. <laughs>